Here's a film in which the protagonists were instantly shown demonstrable proof of his goodness, and then we watch him go downhill from there in a way that is truly tragic. And yet we never forget the spark of goodness that we saw in the beginning. Those are words from director David Lowry on Ulu Grossbart's 1978 film, Straight Time. Seeing Faces in Movies is a podcast where each month I focus on the works of a different director or cinematographer, and each week I invite a guest on to discuss the film and the artist's filmography. I'm your host, Felicia Maroney, and this is a special features episode, and these monthly bonus episodes are outside of the filmographies of the current director in focus. Special features came about because I want to talk to someone I love about a film either they love or I love, and hopefully we both love. Today's film in question is one that I've loved for so long. And I had been telling today's guests how they should watch it because it will change their life. And last year, we both had the opportunity to watch it together at the Review Cinema in Toronto for a Neon Dream screening. This film means the absolute world to me, and I will take any chance I get to screen it for people. Quick disclaimer, in the recording with my guests, my voice might sound a little different than usual. Full disclosure, I had a stomach bug the day before. I was vomiting for a full 24 hours. And you can hear it in my voice. But I hope you enjoyed so, a quick synopsis of Straight Time. After being released on parole, a career burglar assaults his former probation officer, returns to a life of crime, and goes on the run. The film stars Dustin Hoffman as Max Dembo, Teresa Russell as Jenny Mercer, Gary Busey as Willie Darren, and Harry Dean Stanton as Jerry Shu. It's written by Alvin Sargent, Edward Bunker, and Jeffrey Baum, and Michael Mann and Nancy Dowd, who are both uncredited. It's based on the novel by Edward Bunker, No Beast So Fierce. Cinematography by Owen Roisman, edited by Sam Osteen and Randy Roberts, and music by David Shire. So today my guest is Darren McGrath, and you might recognize him as being my very first guest on the show. We talked about Billy Wilder's Ace in the Hole, so I highly recommend you go back and listen to that one if you haven't. Thanks for coming back on the show, Dar. Thanks for having me. I, I'm, I'm honored to be the uh, the first guest invited back, Yeah, or at least recording, recording-wise anyway. I won't make you reintroduce yourself. People can go back and listen to your intro on the first episode. But instead of asking you to talk about your relationship with cinema, I'll ask you, what have you been watching in the last couple of months that you would recommend if you could give me and the listeners like three films that you would highly recommend? Uh, that I would highly recommend. Yeah. Um, the first would be uh, we watched we were watching a lot of uh New York based films. And there was a great one that I'd never heard of called The Catered Affair um, with Betty Davis and Ernest Borgnine. Mm -hmm. And it was just about a young couple who want to get married and have a small wedding. But unfortunately, their parents are, I think, it Italian and Irish or something. And that, that's not possible in, 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 in those cultures to have a small wedding, I guess, or at least back then. Uh, so that was like a really entertaining, quite heartfelt film. Uh, the other one, a really cool samurai film I watched called. Um, sort of doom it was it, it kind of has a the bad guy as the as the main protagonist and it was like really well done it was looked amazing great fights great um great story and just like a great kind of performance from the lead the lead actor do you remember who directed it he's googling it <laughs> i'm actually on letterbox it was directed by uh kiachi okamoto I think I'm, I'm just reading the name, so hopefully I pronounced it correctly. The the lead performer was Tetsuo Nakadai. Uh, I, I've seen him in other kind of films. I think he's in, um, I think he might be in Yojimbo or something like that. He's the bad guy in that too. He's got these really big eyes and he just like makes a great villain. 
Just a, another film. Uh, I guess I need a third one. You can pat yourself on the back for this, I guess. Le, Le, Le Bonheur. I'm sorry for the pronunciation, but that's that's my inability to speak French. The Agnes Varda film. Uh, that was that was pretty great. Very upsetting. And I paused it at the exact wrong moment. Yes. If you're ever watching a film and you decide to pause it, you know, had the film ended where I paused it, it would have just been like, I don't understand why. It was just about a bunch of people, you know, living, living their lives. But um, yeah, that film went places. Did you eat popcorn while you watched it? I didn't eat popcorn while I watched it, no. That's an inside joke for the <laughs> listeners. We're not I'm telling sure I would, I would love to tell the story, but... Inappropriate films to eat popcorn at. It could yeah. be a whole podcast in itself. Well, those are all good three recommendations the the second one the samurai one i hadn't i haven't seen yet i'm not huge on samurai films yeah if you're not i think it's just a it's an amazing looking film and i mean i haven't seen that many either i've just seen kind of the main stuff that everybody would have seen yeah the kurosawa stuff yeah i just like the sound of it because it sounded like a mike minola comic or something like that like sword of doom so i literally watched it because of the title i'd like to get into more samurai stuff yeah, I mean they're they're essentially westerns, and you love westerns, so I do love westerns. Yeah, I mean they're just westerns that look different, really. Well, thanks for explaining what a samurai film is for I'm, the listeners I'm here to, and I'm myself. Here to explain. <laughs> I really appreciate it. Let's get into the tagline of the film that we're talking about today. There's a few taglines, but this is the one that I like the most. Then we'll get into some facts. Mm-hmm. I know you claim that you have an interesting fact. Chances are, I might have it. But if you don't, if I don't, I, I'm going to be. I'm going to be surprised if you have this fact that I have. It's it's okay. It's only mind blowing, really, for like you, probably for me and, and okay. your dad. If he's listening, your dad actually would be like crazy. Is okay. it the same fact? I don't know. Now I don't know. Now I don't think so. <laughs> Tagline for the 1978 film Straight Time is please god don't let him get caught i think it's pretty good mm-hmm. it's from the uh i guess the female character's perspective that mm-hmm. that tagline um yeah i guess i mean the first time i saw this film i saw it with you uh yes. we saw it at the review cinema in toronto yes uh uh you'd seen it already i believe as you had seen it a few remi- times before, reminding yeah. me constantly that you'd already seen it because you're more of a cinephile yeah how many times had you seen it you'd seen it a few times right i'd seen it a few times the very first time I'd watched it was, um, and hopefully this doesn't offend any listeners, but I watched it because I'm a really big Harry Dean Stanton fan. He's my favorite actor. And so I, he did a film with Dustin Hoffman, who I really like. It was impossible to find. So I had to pirate bay it. This is, and I remember watching it in my bed in wow. Dublin and just on my laptop because I obviously didn't have a TV. Well, <laughs> hey, I mean, I do own a copy of it now. Yeah, it wasn't yeah. released. See, yeah. so you know, piracy uh, works in those regards. You know, sometimes it it well, introduces yeah. you to new things that you wouldn't have been able to find otherwise. The time that we saw it together was the very first time I saw it in a cinema. I didn't think I'd yeah. ever be able to see this film in a cinema, and mm-hmm. the screening was packed. I was yeah, shocked. And it looked ama- it looked amazing. I mean, I'd never even heard of it until I think we saw a trailer for it during another film, and um, I'd never even heard of it. Yeah, no, which is crazy. That's not factual. That's not, factual. That's not factual. What you just said, that you had never heard of Straight Time before. And you just said that I talked to you about it all the time. And I've definitely told you about no, it. I'm not, no, I was saying you've talked to me. I've reminded me that you'd seen it multiple times before. Okay, well, I will cut most of this out. But I will say that that's not factual because I did tell you about it several times. But yeah, you it's might fine. Have. The listeners don't need to hear all that. 
Okay. Are you ready for some facts? I am ready. There's quite a few, but I'm going to try and uh, rapid fire. So the first one is Hoffman was denied Final Cut and sued Warner Brothers for the treatment of the film. I, I'm wondering what the his Final Cut was, because I think this one looks like the story ends perfectly. I think there was something with the ending that they changed that he didn't like, but this is the only ending I've ever seen, obviously, so I don't know. But I'm wondering what it was enough for him to like sue them <laughs> for the treatment of the the film in its entirety. It was just the 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 ethics of it, I guess. Maybe he just felt strong. Probably. About I guess there there is some stuff in the film that we'll probably get into where you're kind of like, I mean, I kind of like that they leave stuff unsaid, but there's there's certain things where you're kind of like that that didn't kind of go anywhere. Or, yeah. Um, there's loose ends that maybe are kind of obvious that maybe could have been added scenes or something like that. Kind of, but I feel like that's like the seventies, right? Where they were able to do that. Yeah, I mean, there's the the ones just to skip ahead. There's the one scene where he's introduced to this this young kid who's the brother of somebody he knows. But I was, and it kind of just goes away. But yeah, I I thought well, we'll get into that later because I feel like I yeah. I read that differently. But yeah, I did I did read something about it afterwards where he was using it as like a way to distract. But yeah, Hoffman had only really done some pre-production like directing and only the first couple of days and realized he couldn't do it he couldn't direct himself so then he called Ulu Grosbard who he'd worked with before and replace him I know when a lot of people talk about this film they say that Hoffman co-directed it but he didn't really like he didn't really do anything that anything that's on screen that we saw he didn't direct any of those things but he did try and take over and that's why they kind of had a falling yeah. out yeah. Where he was trying to like, you should do it this way. Yeah, I think in the editing as well, he kind of took over and kind of kicked him out of the room, sort of, sort of style, which happens sometimes. Ed- Edward Norton was famous for that, right during uh, American History X or and a couple other films. I think he tried to take over from the director and edit the film himself. Yeah, that's actors for you. Jake Busey, who plays Gary Busey's son, is his actual son. Mm-hmm. He d- he went on to do some acting, but I did oh, like really? that it was his actual son. They kind of look alike. He's good. Yeah, he's great. He's good. M. Emmett Walsh, one of his first appearances on film was as an extra on the bus in Midnight Cowboy, which is obviously starring Dustin Hoffman. I thought that was cool. Hoffman prepared for this role as Max Denbo by visiting Folsom Prison, even though the film is predominantly set outside of the prison. Uh, mm-hmm. Hoffman just wanted to experience the conditioning of you know jail life and the atmosphere in order to create a well-rounded character. Had been released right. from prison after serving six year sentence. I'm sure. I'm sure the. I'm sure the inmates love that. <laughs> I, I'm sure that happens quite often with actors. Yeah, I'm like, sure I need to it, yeah. see, you know, what your life is like. Yeah. I don't know how I feel actors, about that. Actors just spending a few days in jail to sort of, you know, oh, this is terrible. Okay, well, bye. It's shot entirely on location in LA. You don't really get as often anymore because I know it's super expensive to shoot in LA. So I feel like after yeah. the 80s, you're seeing a lot of films that are set in LA that might not actually, you know, take place in LA. Yeah. This film inspired Tarantino films, uh, Reservoir Dogs and Jackie Brown. I could definitely yeah. see it yeah. in the Jackie All Brown. All of them, I think. Yeah, definitely. One of my last facts, or my last fact, and then I'll pass it over to you if this is not the one. In the intro, I listed off some writers. There's one whose name is. You would probably recognize if you've watched yes. films. <laughs> and <laughs> when you see in the credits, if you're watching the film, you're not going to see this man's name there. This man's man's name there. Yeah. And 
because he was uncredited. So Michael Mann was one of the three writers who worked on the Mm -hmm. script for the movie. Which makes a lot of sense when you hear it. Yeah, He wrote in an original draft with Bunker. Mann worked with Bunker for three months, during which time he visited Folsom Prison and interviewed several inmates who had known Bunker during his time there. Mann's draft of the script was written when Dustin Hoffman was slated to direct the film. But then when Ulu Grossbride took over as a director, he hired two other writers to rewrite Mann's mm-hmm. script. So those ones that we see got writing credits. Michael Mann did not. I mean, I'm a huge Mann fan. I could see... You're a manimal. Yes. <laughs> I guess. That's what his fans are called. I just made that up, but I think it might it might take off. Yeah. Manimals. Sure. I mean, he's got a new one coming out, so the animals are going to be in a frenzy. But uh, I could definitely, although it seems obviously his script is fully rewritten, but I could definitely see him writing and directing a film like this. Yeah, it's definitely got his like his vibes, if not his like questionable sort of female <laughs> character as well. Uh, where you're like, what's going on with this woman? Um, I heard different things about. There's an adaptation of the script and then man wrote a version of it or something. And I heard different things, but yeah, those are none of the facts. Okay. That fact I did have, but I, the one I have is not, is not that. Okay. So it's your turn now. Surprise me. All right. So most, most of my facts are about uh, Edward Bunker himself, who, um, okay. who wrote it while he was in prison and he, mm-hmm. he appears in the film as well. He's the fixer. He's mm-hmm. the guy who with the mustache and he comes in to get the job off him, which is a really interesting role. Uh, I also read that Michael Mann, used bunker as a consultant on some of his films and he was a consultant on heat and the john voight character is based on edward bunker daddy trejo uh the actor daddy trejo is godfather to his son because they met in Folsom prison they were they were oh. they were bunk- bunkies or whatever you call it uh he also was in bunker reservoir had dogs. A monkey. he had a monkey uh he was in reservoir dogs he was in tarantino yeah. reservoir dogs he's mr blue he was mm-hmm. and um he was the youngest inmate ever at san quentin at age 19 that's oh. a nice that's a nice thing that's a nice record that's not yeah. my big fact though my big fact is that when he got out of prison and straight time happened and all that in the early 90s he opened a taxi service in kingston ontario what <laughs> which is where you're from just that yes. yeah so in the 90s he ran a, he ran a taxi company in kingston and it got it got bought out it's uh it's now it's now amy's it's still under um Oh yeah, A-N-E-Y-S. I know. Amy's. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so it's now under uh, the control of whoever was that taxi company, but they bought Edward Bunker out. So you 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 know, you might have been in a car with uh or maybe your dad was in a car with uh with Edward Bunker. Who knows? Was he driving also or did he just own? I mean, I assume he might have done some some trips, you know. Maybe. I don't know. When he got started, it was a small taxi company, so yeah. How's that for a fact? That's a pretty good fact. That's not something I would have ever assumed. Yeah. I don't know why he was in Kingston, Ontario for a few years. Who knows? But uh, there's a huge prison there. So <laughs> let's talk about someone whose life choices are not the best. But we'll talk about do you think he's a good guy? Do you think he's not? So let's get into straight time. I have a few points I want to go over. We can go back and forth. You can bring up whatever. But where I wanted to start was kind of the way Grossbard shoots the characters, Grossbard and Co. She's the characters as everyday mm. people because no one on in this film seems like they're out of the ordinary. They just look like regular people you would see out the street. They're living. Yeah, it feels very. It feels very lived in. No one feels like oh, this you know this is a movie character. It just feels even Max Dembo, 
Like there's people who live lives like that. And you yeah. never question that he is genuine. So I'm going to read a quick quote from New York Times on their description of Max. Max is shrewd, self-absorbed, tough, and superficial ways and doomed. He defines the meaning of recidivism. In real life, you wouldn't trust him to hang up your coat. So <laughs> I think that's a very harsh reading of Max. Yeah. He does come out of prison with the greatest of intentions, but life is not good to people who've been in jail for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. Sometimes that's with good reason. Like you shouldn't be treated like everyone else. Like, and sometimes if it's like he just, he just robbed a place, like he's done his time, but it's hard for him to get a job. He is not allowed to drive. Mm-hmm. He's not allowed to handle money. So there's only certain jobs that he can get. And he has mm-hmm. his parole officer on his ass. So how do you feel about the way, or how do you view Max versus the way the writer for New York Times does versus, for mm-hmm. me, how I view? I think it's a, it's a really interesting question. And I, I've watched this film three times in the last probably 18 months. And my view has definitely switched a little bit. I think I definitely felt what you felt the first time I watched it, for sure. And then having watched love on her recently I, i've 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 stopped trusting male characters in films and i started looking at it from a slightly different perspective yeah um, deservedly so i think i actually think having watched it this time i had a different take on max completely i don't think he does he want to go straight that's the uh, that's i guess the question is like i don't think he necessarily does i think all of the things even though his his parole officer is obviously a huge massive power hungry dickhead but he he is right from the off he's pushing to see what he can get away with. He he's always pushing to see what he can get away with. Even when he's like at the restaurant with the girl on the date, he's like he want he's he's kind of bragging about, you know, prison and stuff like that. And there's stuff throughout the film where especially when he goes to meet the Edward Bunker character, you realize he's kind of he's he's more famous. He's more of a crook than maybe you were led to believe necessarily. Mm-hmm. He was definitely more well known. He seems to be like a respected criminal. He hates the parole officer, but he doesn't really rage against like the injustice of it all or anything like that. He kind of one of the things I read in a review was that he understands that the world is crooked and he's just trying to beat the system. He's just trying to see what yeah. he can get away with. And I think as the film goes on and you see him with Harry Dean Stanton and the way he kind of uses his friends. I mean, the, yeah. the, the Gary Boosie character is is just very sad and tragic. This is a guy who's getting who's a drug addict. He's getting his life together. He's a you know, relatively good father. He clearly has a temper, <laughs> but uh, you know, he's, he's able to get it under control. That, that, there's that great scene where he kind of apologizes to the son mm-hmm. after kind of losing it with him a little bit. The wife is walking on eggshells with him a little bit, but he brings everybody back into the game. He brings everybody back into that life. Harry Dean Stanton, as much as he wants to get out of it, you know, he's got a pretty good setup where he is. I mean, mm-hmm. and it, it's Max Denbo goes and he, I think his, his behavior through the film is pretty abhorrent. When you look at it, from that perspective i mean he gets his this young girl that he's kind of romancing he he brings her into the store under she's maybe under the impression he's going to buy her something nice and he's casing the joint and he's which means he's involving her in the crime yeah i mean he's got her now like as an accomplice against her will and he does this again and again and 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 he the whole like him pushing things he's constantly pushing things so even with the the parole officer who's not a nice character at all but he's probably dealt with guys like this his entire career. And he's like, why is this guy already pushing? Like right from the off, he doesn't go to the hotel he's supposed to go to. He goes somewhere yeah. else. Why would you do that on your first night? Why would you do something that you know is going to get you into shit? 
and I think he says something like I called, which I think he did call or whatever. But I mean, it, it kind of culminates with the end where, where when they're robbing the first the bank, and then the store and Max pushes things. He's there yes. for longer than he wants to be. Harry Dean Stanton's doing that great. Let's get out of here, man, kind of speech. When they go to the jewelry store, he takes even longer. I mean, he's already they've already had that incident where he's taken too long at the bank. And then he goes and he does it again. And he he blames kind of Gary Boosie for it. But they tell Gary Boosie, you know, when the alarm goes off, we're going to be this long. I think he leaves when he hears the alarm goes off. I think he says that mm-hmm. later on. He admits that he just gets scared and runs. I mean, he would have gone anyway. He would have left anyway because he told him leave after the alarm goes off at a certain point and he takes extra long time to yep. smash everything and steal more stuff and he's he gets his friend killed he gets his and then he's kind of involved everybody in his life into this life of crime so yeah um i don't know at this this viewing i had a very different view of max i think that maybe he's i don't know if he ever intended to go straight i guess is the question I don't know. I, I think that's a good point. Everything you're saying is valid. It's it's dependent on the person, right? So I'm viewing it as kind of feeling sorry for him. Mm-hmm. And I don't know why, like, he did not need to do any of these things. I think that he, and this ties into the very last, last sequence where you see the, the mugshots throughout the time. And you can see yeah. that he's been in prison since he was a kid, essentially. Exactly. So he doesn't yeah. know any other life. And maybe at this last six-year stint, he realized, hey, maybe I don't want to come back here and tried and realized it just doesn't make sense because he doesn't know how to live any other life. So yeah. instead of being an adult about it, he just was like, well, this is easier. And he's very self-absorbed, obviously, mm-hmm. because as you said, he's taking in people who, yes, they're willing participants, but he didn't need to involve them. Same with the Jenny. He involves her before that because he's staying at her place and he's... Yeah run out on his parole so they're obviously looking for him and she'll get in trouble if they find him at her house i don't know if you want to start if we want to shift to jenny now i always hear different things about jenny jenny i mean i think it's a really good performance i do i don't know if it's intentionally done i mean it's kind of like what is her deal it is this young attractive woman she's just started a new job obviously she doesn't like it very much but that's fine she's got a new job um she's got a pretty good place she seems like she's a very neat tidy person i mean it's like why is she with this guy what is the he doesn't like you know seduce her in 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 a sort of like manipulative way she just seems kind of lonely and i I wonder is that all it is is that they're just kind of saying that these are lonely people they don't have they don't have support systems regardless of whether they're criminals or not that's how they kind of find each other I think yeah, it's I know. Exactly how do, how do you that. feel about the, the the character? It's 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 a good role, and I think she does really well with it. But you could also accuse it of being sort of what would you say? I don't know. Sexist. Sort of like she doesn't have any agency, or she's just kind of going along. Or yeah, I don't read it that way, and I, I think it's especially due to Teresa Russell's performance. Mm-hmm. who's great in it. Yeah, I think this is a girl who's on the surface seems to have everything together. She kind of looks like a very straight laced. Like she's not wearing anything that's even remotely attractive. You know, she lives on her own. I don't know if she owns this place. She's renting. Doesn't matter. She lives on her mm-hmm. own. She has her own car and has a job. So why would she be attracted to this person? And I see when I read people's thoughts on her, they're like, why is she just okay with this? But I think it's that she's lonely and we don't know anything of her background, right? We yeah. don't know. Some people just have like a craving for something a little dangerous that's outside of their world and i think it's that i think she found him attractive and she was like this could be fun 
you know, there is that scene where they're talking and she's like, you know, how long are you going to be doing this? And he's like, I am doing this one big job. That's it. I can't tell you anymore. You shouldn't get involved Mm. in it. I just never questioned the fact that she would be into someone like that. Because just because someone has their life together doesn't mean mentally she's all put together. She says so little about herself, I guess. But so do the other characters too, though. That's true. Yeah, that that's the thing. That's what kind of what I like though. That everybody's sort of like a they're all kind of like sketches to a certain degree. There's they're they they, they exist in the, the vacuum of the movie and you don't get a lot of like background. You get hints of like Harry Dean Stanton yeah. and he's got a job. I mean he's got a full time job and a wife and a nice house and a swimming pool. And you know, this guy just loves committing crimes. But I think the initial scene between Hoffman and Russell, I think that's where the kind of key lies, where it's he's he's just like honest with her. He just tells her the truth, which is that, you know, he really needs a job. He's trying to get it all together. Maybe he believes that at the time. I think maybe he does. And then and then the next scene you have them in where he's uh they're having dinner and he she helps him pay for it. And I think, you know No, but I think that that translates to like his life outside of prison. He doesn't look like someone who would be a leader who would be able to conduct something on his own, but he is leading all these people astray. Yeah. Right. So he is the one who's pulling their strings and getting them out of their comfort lives to be like, well, you're comfortable, but you could be, you know, making more money. Kathy Bates sees him for who he is. She knows that he's going to get the husband in trouble. And the other interesting scene I found was when he's trying to convince Harry Dean Stanton to do the next job, the the bank job, to start not the bank job, the, the jewelry store. And yeah. Harry Dean Stanton doesn't want to do it because it's in Beverly Hills. There's too many cops. All logical reasons for not wanting to do it. It's too loud. He just he's just kind of playing Harry Dean Stanton's character. He's like, and in that scene, I was like, it kind of they kind of come across like they're addicts, like they're junkies. And Harry Dean Stanton just wants to fix. He doesn't really care as much about the reward. He he cares more about mm. the thrill of doing it and it's the, the thrill, thrill of doing the job because he makes and, enough money. Clearly, I think yeah, he owns he, the shop that he's he owns the shop. I think he's the boss anyway. Yeah. 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 And I think I think uh, Max Denbo, it might not be the same reason he's doing it. I don't know exactly. But I think he sees that that's the reason Harry Dean Stanton does it. And he plays it. And he says, yeah. you know, this is going to be good. Like, this is going to be. And that, that's what convinces Harry Dean Stanton to go ahead with it. Mm-hmm. Even though he's got his reservations because he's been in two situations now with Max Denbo where things have gone wrong. There's the, the, the heist that didn't happen. The poker game heist that didn't yeah. happen. And then there was the bank job that he kind of went too far with with the time and stuff like that so you can see Harry Dean Stanton has like reservations about going along with this guy I mean I love the script for this film I think it's really good and there's a line from what you were referring to that I was going to mention later but I'll just say now in terms of the Beverly Hills jewelry shop Hmm. gig Jerry who's played by Harry Dean says I don't know about Beverly Hills it scares the shit out of me and Max goes fuck Beverly Hills Real punk punk rock thing to say, yeah. I also wouldn't want to be robbing Beverly Hills out of any place in LA. Yeah. Like, I don't even go into the shops at Beverly Hills, let alone want to go rob. Yeah, exactly. Beverly Hills. Yeah. Even when they're casing the store, I mean, he's kind of taking the piss a little bit. He goes obviously towards something and says, it's the bathroom. Why would they have a bathroom at a jewelry store? And they, the guy is like, what are you doing? Like, what's what's happening here? Yeah, I, there's, there's an element of Max that I think, does he want to get caught? Does he... Want to see how far he can get before he gets caught, and it's like a game. Where I he's think just it's like, that. How much can I do before they're going to get me? Because they're going to get me. I mean, clearly, because he's been in and out of jail since yeah. he was a teenager. That's his life. That's who he is. 
where we have been talking about the crimes in the film and the different jobs, but I think the street time is uh, overall is much more than just the crimes. The crimes happen mm -hmm. and they're a big part of it, but I think the film and the story deep down is just about his moral dilemma along with the other characters. They all know what's happening is not good and have multiple chances to get out of this, but they don't. They're struggling with their morals. So how do you feel about the fact that you know, this is described as a heist film. And yes, there are mm. heists in it, but it's so much more than just, I think we could have even got away with just having one heist done and you would still get the picture. Yeah. So how do you feel about the moral through line in this film? Uh, yeah, I think it's like a, it's a nature versus nurture kind of, are these people like this because this is this world I grew up, grew up in, or is it just who they are as, as people? I mean, the Gary Boosie character is the only one who kind of decides this is too much this is kind of you know i'm not gonna i have something good going i he's a riveter it's not an easy job but he's he's kind of got his family life just about together and he doesn't want to risk it in the end he doesn't he kind of goes along with it and then he doesn't want to risk it and he's the only character who sort of seems to have learned something even though you don't see that happening but you know he's the only one who seems to have like evolved from the past sort of thing i think the way the film is shot as well is really interesting because he doesn't switch the character moments and everything like that. And then to the heist moments, the camera kind of stays the same. It's almost very, some of the reviews were saying, you know, it's very kind of dull because the way he shoots it is almost like matter of fact. He doesn't do any mm -hmm. crazy angles. Everything is sort of just almost workmanlike. And I don't mean that in a bad way. You know, if Michael Mann was making this film, the, the heist yeah. scenes would be like big productions. And it's almost like Max Denbo walking down the street and making a phone call is the same as him going in and robbing a bank. Yeah. It's, it's, or the scene where he's in the jail is the only time where the camera moves a little bit. And it's just shot very matter-of-factly. It's shot, everybody's sort of just on point. And I think the the way he shoots the characters is he wants them to feel like they're lived-in real characters that, yeah, you would just meet on the street or you would just maybe come across at some point in your life and not even think about. How do you feel about, the, about all that? Yeah, I agree. And I think that's why I personally love the film so much because I like kind of matter of fact shooting. Mm -hmm. Not that I don't like when, you know, there's a lot of different camera angles or the camera's kind of helping to create the tension. But like you said, I, immediately I was like, yeah, this is not a Michael Mann film, which, and I, as much, I've already said, I love Michael Mann, but that's his style of being like, okay, the camera's going to get right in there so that you're uncomfortable. But I think this works for this film of just being kind of static because you kind of just feel like you're standing there in that room and you can't do anything because the camera won't let you look away from what's happening. It's shot yeah. all wide shots and you see the action from everyone as opposed to being like, oh, what are they doing over there? It's like, no, I see everything. I love the fact that it's all shot in LA. You know, LA in this film kind of in the same vein of although this is before to live and die in la but it's the la that we don't see that often apart from the scene in beverly hills in this film usually yeah. when you get an la film you're getting you know the beach you're getting those specific areas that we all know in la but this is just like there's nothing really la about it apart from you know the eating outside the diners outside and stuff like that yeah i don't know really what the time frame is of this but it seems like it's probably two weeks of max dembo's life yeah it's maybe not a, a very long time anyway yeah maybe, maybe i think there's some time between the bank job and the, the jewelry store they seem to indicate that there's some time has passed but without having the camera you know moving around even in the bank job or the jewelry job you, you kind of flash between 
Max yeah. and Jerry because they're on separate islands, but it's not anything other than just cutting and cutting in and out. It just moves with the characters. Yeah. We're never too close to them when we're watching them, but you're tense because you're like, this is it. Like, this is, they're going to get caught here and there. And whether you're rooting for them to get caught at that point, at, at, by the time you get to the jewelry job, you're like, okay, Max is asking for it. And not that Jerry's not. <laughs> and maybe because I love Harry Dean that I don't want him to get caught. Mm. But at that point, you're just kind of waiting. You're essentially waiting for the cops to arrive at yeah, that point. Yeah. And there's that look, there's that look that Harry Dean standing gives him, you know, after mm-hmm. he gets shot, which is just like, I, I told you, man. Like, <laughs> why did you, why did you have to do it? We could have gotten away. We could have gotten away. Mm-hmm. Even if, even if the car had gone, they could have probably still gotten away if they left on time, you know, because the yeah. cops took that much, that much longer to get there. The amount of trust in the actor's performance is, is sort of rare without the kind of, snazzy camera work where all you're left with is dustin hoffman just being on the screen and just like for me it's his best performance i think i i think he carries the whole film and he's he's amazing at with the other actors as well and he even even like kathy bates who has like a small role does really well like it's it, everything everything feels sort of like they're real people they're just tired <laughs> they're, they're, mm-hmm. everybody is just like trying to get ahead even the extras of the film are sort of like you know, the people in the jewelry store in the bank, they're kind of like, yeah, you know, this is the world we live in. You know, this is yeah. not, nobody's like in hysterics kind of thing. Um, even it, it, the M.M. at Walsh character is maybe the, the most cartoonish, but even him, like you've met people like that guy, like oh, yeah. that sort of like gross sort of, you know, cynical guy who's like just causing problems for the sake of causing yeah. problems. You want Max to hit that guy. So <laughs> you're kind of happy. Yeah. We, well, okay, let's talk about M.M. Walsh. For a sec, then I feel like the way your viewing of Max Dembo changed over time, mine has changed with his character over the last few viewings. Yeah. So immediately, the first few times, you're just like, yeah, I can't deal with this guy. You know, why is he giving him such a hard time? Yeah. After a while, you're kind of like, this man is just doing his job. Is he taking advantage? (laughs) Yes. He's just doing his job. And I think because Max is giving him a hard time, he doesn't like that. And he's like, no, it shouldn't be that way. This shouldn't be the dynamic. Yeah. He wants someone who's going to kiss his ass. And he doesn't like that. So then he gets him arrested. But he also like goes in his room. He sees somebody who's been shooting up in the room. I mean, he does it in a really kind of unnecessary way. But it's also like he's probably dealt with so many of these kind of people. And he's just like, I don't, why mm-hmm. should I believe this guy? You know, because he's Dustin Hoffman. Like, I don't care. That scene was weird to me because the evidence that's left is like matches. So he could just be smoking. So it's like, does he have it? Does Max have a history of doing drugs? Why it's like in his file, why he'd be looking for that? Or he's just looking for an excuse to get him arrested. I think he's looking for an excuse, yeah. And it's kind of like, it's the way the matches are set up. You set them up like they're standing. So when you're cooking the heroin on the spoon or whatever, you're, it's, I don't know. built a little device for himself. Sorry, I just know it from train spotting, stuff like that. <laughs> so it's it's just the way the matches are sitting. There's like four or five matches sitting on the pack. So it's it's he was cooking something with the matches, sort of. So that's the giveaway oh, okay. that he was he was doing something. And there's there's a couple of other things that he kind of says and does that make him sort of like like questionable to to a parole officer who probably wants him to be by the book if you're if you're going to be serious about. It. I think that the, the thing that makes the MMI Wall character horrific is kind of when he puts him in the prison. Okay, fine, whatever. But then he comes back and when he's getting him released, he's like, oh, I was going to do it on Friday, but I had some stuff on. So I left you here for a weekend. That's when it's kind of like, yeah. that's the sort of thing that drives 
Max over the edge a little bit. He's just like, you, you know, you could have gotten me out of here a few days earlier. Yes. I mean, it would drive anyone. And he also didn't need to tell him that. Yeah. 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 It's a power move. Then when we get to the scene in the car, they're driving on the highway, which I love a good LA highway scene. And then he kind of takes over custom to the fence and pantses mm. him. And like, that's played for, you know, comic relief. Yeah. That looks very real. I mean, that's like actually on the highway. I don't know how they oh, shot yeah. that. I'm sure there was probably people who saw that happening and were like, I don't <laughs> know what's happening. Because the camera's far enough behind that, like, they clearly were just on the other side of the highway. I was one. I wonder how they shot that or if they just did it for real and they were like, whatever, let's see what happens. I don't know. It feels like something they would just do for real. Yeah. What do you think about the, what do you think about the music in the film? I love it. I love it. Yeah. It's very sort of jaunty. <laughs> Well, it, the the score and now even just thinking about it, it's stuck in my head. It's kind yeah, of they yeah. only use like two songs essentially. Yeah, it's it's this kind of weird country sort of twang thing. Yeah, the you know saxophone heavy, and it's David Shire who did this. It's very different from like a Dave Brewson film. It's like super piano heavy. Mm-hmm. I like this because it kind of it kind of gives it like a weird westerny vibe too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. This and he kind of has Max has his own theme song because the one that I'm yeah. thinking of, I'm sure you are, is usually when we're following Max. Yeah, it's at the very start of the movie, it, kind of. And then you hear it again, I think, when he's walking around, and then at the end again, it's like it's Max's theme. Yeah, it doesn't really set any tone because if you're listening to the music and you're thinking, "Oh, this is going to be a fun time," it's not. I don't know. I love it how simple it is and how. I kind of had to. I read about the title a little bit, and just the idea that. You do time on the inside and then you do time on the outside and that's called straight time. Where yeah. It's like they're both sentences in, in, in a way. They're both kind of like, it's just one's on the inside, one's on the outside. They're both kind of um, things that somebody has to go through. Mm-hmm. And the, the implication is that it ends so that, you know, you're going to end up back in prison and then you're going to get out and you're going to go back out again for a while and then you're going to go back into prison. Because Max Max has this thing where he thinks that the system's supposed to meet him halfway, I guess. And it's like, that's not mm-hmm. how it works, I guess. Especially for like a repeat convict. A repeat offender, I should say. I'm going to ask you, do you have a favorite shot in the film? But before that, I'm just going to read another quote from the same New York Times article, which will lead me to my favorite scene. So they say, straight time is not a movie to raise the spirits. It is so cool it would leave a chill were it not done with such precision and control that we remain fascinated by a rat in spite of ourselves. So I think that ties into what you were saying about Max. The film is not trying to force you to root any sort of way for this man, I don't think. I don't think it's trying to make you hate him. I don't think it's trying to make you like him. It's just kind of matter of fact. And I think that's what's so chilling about it, which leads me to my favorite scene, which has always been from the very start, first time I watched this till this recent watch. It's a scene when we first meet Jerry, Harry Dean's character. At that point, especially for me, I was like, oh, where's Harry Dean? It's almost an hour into this (laughs) film. He hasn't come up yet. They're having food by the pool. The wife's there as well. The wife brings out a guitar for Harry Dean to sing. And I love a good Harry Dean singing scene. He starts a song and the camera's like leveled to them. And then it cuts and we're above them now. And the camera pans out. Mm. And then that's when you're like, okay, stuff's going to get real. That's one of the only kind of fancy shots in the film as well. Yeah, I love that scene, though. I love the way that's shot. I absolutely would steal it for my film. And it's not that it's like the very first time anyone's done that. But I like the way that that brings you now into the second half of the film. 
where we're getting because prior to that there were no crimes committed yeah i can't remember if he had committed the crime in the convenience store just before that to get some uh, petty cash yeah, the convenience store or it might have been like right after that scene where he meets jerry it might have been right before i think it was it was, yeah i think that scene happens right bef- after he uh the mm at watch scene where he lo- locks him up on, next yes. on the highway and then i think he's like well now i'm on the run i need some money i'm immediately yeah. gonna go get a gun and then i'm gonna go rob a store and then i'm gonna get somebody to help me out with a bigger robber do you have a favorite scene I mean, I, I I thought you were going to say the shower scene, so that was going to be my favorite scene. Was going to be the burger and song scene. So. <laughs> the scene because we see I haven't even mentioned yet. I was keeping that. <laughs> yeah. Get to see I a mean, bit of Dustin Hoffman dick. <laughs> uh, I mean, that it's scene probably, is dark though. It's it like, is dark. I don't yeah, see it's a depressing. bunch of people. But all those guys are like definitely like re- they're all repeat offenders. Every single one of them like knows the system. Yeah, you know exactly what they need to do. The thing I find interesting about the uh, the Harry Dean Stanton scene is the any other movie would just cut that out. They would just cut the song out. They'd be like, "Oh, we can cut it. We can shave literally like two minutes off the film here if we cut this out." And for me, it's like that's what makes the film so unique is that they're willing to stay with that character and just play a song, and the actors just sit there and they listen to it and they're kind of having a good yeah. time. Because the song really has nothing to do with anything other than the fact that I'm sure Grossbard. And maybe even Hoffman, we're like, we know that you can do this. Do you want to do it? Because who doesn't want to watch Harry Dane play a song? It's not like an indication of what's going to happen or anything like that. No, it's, no. Just, it's just sort of I like think the fun... camera panning out is an indication, but the song yeah. itself is not. Yeah. I want to talk about Jerry for a bit. Also, as I mentioned several times now, Harry Dane's my favorite actor. When he comes up, it kind of brings the life back into the film a bit because at some point you're Mm -hmm. kind of like, okay, what's happening here? He has, yes, done that one little petty crime, but what's happening once we get Harry Dean, we get a whole other side of Max. And he's like, oh, this is my old buddy. And I'm really, the wife leaves to go get the guitar or whatever. And he says, get me out of this. It's like, it's kind of funny. Yeah. It's also with with the with the appearance of Jerry, not him himself, but like you kind of start seeing who Max really is. I mean, you kind of he immediately knows what to do. I don't know if he's already kind of planned ahead in prison that he's going to do this, but or I think he just knows that he at one point is going to have to do what he has to do, which is that you have to have a car, you have to have money, you have to have an, uh, somebody to do a job with, you have to have a setup. He knows where to go to get a gun. He knows where to go to get a job. He knows all the kind of people he needs to to do whatever it is that he needs to do. The only complication for him is the girl, is is, is uh, Teresa Russell. And he's expecting her to be like, I'm out. And when she doesn't, I think he's kind of taken aback uh, yeah. a little bit. And he kind of feels like he owes her something, maybe, that this is the first person who's ever sort of stuck with him. And I think that's, yeah. that, that's, what, that's what makes the film, that gives it its kind of humanity right there. But we have we have the same favorite scene, unfortunately. <laughs> well, no, I mean, it's yeah. just a great scene. It's, yeah. I don't know, there's something about it that I... I always look forward to it when it's coming up. I kind of quickly talked about the script, seeing as the script kind of went through different people. I think the final product is great. And there's another line that I really like from Manny, who's played by Sandy Barron. And this is the guy, I don't know if he owns the club or it looks like he probably owns it, the club. And that's where he, when Max asks him about the the guns and he says he owes mm-hmm. them. So they obviously have worked together. And he's telling him about this poker gig that he can go rob. And Manny says, I'll take you out there, but I'm not going to rob it for you. I've got a bad stomach, no guts. And that line, I just love it. That's such a film noir kind of line. It is, but he says it in kind of a, you know, matter of fact, 
kind of way just to be like, yeah, yeah uh, I'll tell you about this, but I'm not going to go there with you. Like, this is your I, job. You find your own people. I will get you the guns. It's also very real that like, you know, there's criminals who know their limits. They're just some of them just yeah. they don't want to deal with guns or they they, they don't they're kind of they do small time stuff because they don't want to do big time stuff. They, you know, that sort of feels very like real and very, they, you know, Edward Bunker was a consultant on the film and everything like that. So he obviously knew a lot of criminals and they. I just like the way everyone speaks in this film. It never seems like it's flashy. It just mm-hmm. is the way people talk to each other. I think that's a great script and just ties into the way the film is shot and the characters. Because even when Jenny and Max are interacting, nothing seems over the top. There's a scene where they're just kind of staring at each other in the quiet because mm. they're trying to figure out how to go from he's robbed a place, she finds out about it. They look in each other's eyes to figure out, is she going to be with me through this? And she's trying to figure out, can I trust yeah. this man? It's only at the end when he stops making eye contact with her that she knows that they're not going together kind of thing. They're in the coffee. They're in the, the diner or whatever. And he's he's avoiding kind of looking at her. Yeah. How do you feel about the Gary Boosie character? He's another one that also, I think that's why the strength in this film is how rewatchable it is. Because there's mm-hmm. no, I guess there's a couple of spoilers in this film that we will get to we've touched we've already mentioned and our first couple of times i was like this guy's annoying he seems like he's like drugged out yeah he's 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 a bit whiny which is what a lot of junkies are like i guess yeah but then as i watch it you kind of feel bad for him because he was working a job he went straight <laughs> as a family and was happy to go straight in that way he's obviously still doing drugs yeah, clearly. So he would have gotten himself into some sort of trouble at some point. But you feel it's, sh- it's kind of shocking when you see him take those drugs. Yeah, it's like, oh, okay, straight. Like the first chance he gets, he's like, all right, let's do it. But that's that's probably very true to life. Every viewing I've had, I've felt really bad for the Gary Boosie character. I think he's he's a guy who's trying to get his life together, and it's like his wife is stuck with him, his kid is stuck with him. He obviously loves them both. He's probably not going to be able to do it. It's so kind of sad what happens at the end. I think and how his like. He he how uh, he looks up to Max Denbo. He's like you know yeah. He's almost like his hero a little bit. He's got like kind of a hero thing with him. He knows that he's sort of messed up the job, but like they're friends, so it's like whatever you know. They're both still there. It's, it'll be fine. You know, Max goes to the house. Just just we're just gonna spoil the film if you haven't watched it. So you should watch it before listening to this. Probably he just goes to, he goes to the house to kill him. I mean, it's premeditated. He, yeah. It's not something that he just thought about. He goes actively to kill him. Yeah. And he kills him in his in his house where his family are i mean his family are gonna find him it's just i mean you i'm know, sure they heard the shot it's so sad you know and the way he does it is so sad it's just before we get into that specific scene there mm-hmm. i do want to talk about something you were mentioning about uh willie this is gary Busey's character there's like a innocence to him that plays across as being clueless mm-hmm. i don't know what he went to jail for i highly doubt it was for a robbery. It might have been for drugs. Who knows? Hmm. He doesn't seem like he was in there long enough to have not wanted to, you know, get his life straight after, which he yeah. was trying to do. Drug addiction is something that's difficult to beat. And he seems like he's trying his best, whatever his best is. I remember the first time I watched this, I was like, why would he go right back to his house? And I, the more you watch it, you're like, oh, he just assumed that he got caught. So he could just go home. Because if I had run off on someone, I would be like, I can't go back to my house. This guy's going to come after me and be pissed off. And he's doing something in his garage. It's not like he's hiding from him. And then when he sees him, he was like, oh, uh," and they trust him enough 
to think that Max is being genuine when he's like, don't worry, it's okay. And he pulls him yeah. in for a hug. And that's when he shoots him. I know you were sort of talking about that, but do you want to talk about, you know, how you feel, how his character came to an end? I, d- I feel like like Willie's just one of those guys who kind of is almost like Arrested Development where he was like, you know, he was a young guy. He, you know, did little petty, petty crimes with his friends and stuff like that. And he just kind of became a drug addict. But he's got that kind of an almost innocent mentality where he's just and he's sort of like a little kid as well with his kid as well. He's sort of like a young teenage boy mentality, at it, but he's he's in a real world. He's in like a, a world of like violence and, and stuff like that. And the world is not nice to those people. And I think him being a drug addict is just, I don't think he has the capacity to deal with sort of the real world. Yeah. And he needs he needs his family to help him along. And that's what they're doing. And it's it's only when Max gets involved in his life and he's got this sort of like friendship loyalty thing because he's got loyalty to him. And that's why he's helping him out. That's why he helps him with the bed. That's why he gives him the car. I mean, he just comes and takes his car. Yeah. And he's just like, yeah, he just like walks in, takes the car and leaves. Willie's fixing the car at the time. He's just like, oh, yeah, no worries. And it's sort of like it's sort of pathetic in the actual like real sense of the word where it's sort of it's sad. I think in the last scene, I just I don't know. I just I just think about how kind of cold blooded it is really to do it like that. What I like about the film as well is that it doesn't it treats the audience with enough respect for us to just figure out what's going on without just being like, oh, let's get a flashback to their time in jail so we can understand why their dynamic is like this, why he has this loyalty to him. We can just be like, well, Max probably helped him out when he was there, probably took care of him while he was mm-hmm. there. Yeah, I didn't realize, I didn't think about that. It might have been like, uh, they might have known each other in prison too. He might have helped him out in prison, which definitely, they did. just reading the book and st- oh, okay, yeah. Well, they did do they mention they the were in prison together. They, were, oh, they mentioned they were there together. I, I don't know what their dynamic was, but obviously they were friends there. That leads us to now another character who essentially bites the dust. <laughs> We've talked about the last heist scene in the jewelry store. Max is pushing it, is getting more jewelry. Jerry's like, come on, we got to go. The alarm's now on. We got to go. We got to go. The car's not there, so they're on the run. Max makes it over the fence. And just as Jerry's trying to get over the fence, he gets shot by a cop. His ending is just really sad. It really is Max's fault. Yes, Jerry didn't need to do this job. He could have just said no. But if Max hadn't stayed those extra minute or so, they maybe could have gotten away. Maybe they didn't. Or it could have been Max who got shot. How do you feel mm-hmm. about the way his character comes to it? And it's heartbreaking because you think oh, they're going to get away or he's going to get away and maybe they'll chase down Max. And I think the, what the film does really well is that in those moments, like with Willie and with Jerry, during their 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 death scenes, you you do think about the moments where they kind of show their humanity. You think about him playing the song, and you think about Willie with his kid at the dinner table, and it's kind of like the loss that you they've suffered because of this. And the, you know, and I think I think Max going up to him, he doesn't really know what to say to him. He's just like, "That's what's going to happen, I guess." Yeah. And I just I love that look that Harry and Stanley gives him. I think that's a great kind of. He doesn't say anything. He just sort of was like, "Shit," <laughs> you know. Yeah. You know. Didn't, this didn't need to happen. It sucks that it happened. But it's also like an almost like an acceptance of this was going to happen at some point, let's be honest, because that's the life they lead. Something you did say about, you know, we see those moments of their actual lives. That's another thing why I love this film so much, because we don't need flashbacks to get give us information about these characters. We can yeah. just see, and in those two scenes, the one with, you know, Willie and his kid and his wife and Jerry and his wife, there was a, both take place in the homes whether it's even outside of their home or inside of the home and i think that's really important to be like 
These mm. are people who have stable lives. And Max is the interrupter. He's the one yes, who's creating chaos so. in the, whatever normalcy that they had. And that's why those scenes take place in their homes. And we don't need to have flashbacks to be like, oh, how did Jerry and Max meet? How did Jerry or mm. Willie and Max meet? Because it's not important. And what they're doing is like a sense of loyalty to their friend or maybe somebody who helps them in prison. And Max is just sort of using. He doesn't yes. he doesn't need to call either of those guys up. He just I mean that scene with Hardin Sand is very funny though when he's like, get me out of here, you know. <laughs> yeah. He's saying that because he wants like a little fix, but like you could see with each job. And even at the end of the the heist, the jewelry shop, he's like, This is the last time, man. I'm not doing this anymore because now you've messed me over three times. The implication, there's there is an implication that he steals, he stays an extra long time to get the watch for Teresa Russell. Yes. It is I don't that. believe that. To be honest, I, but you would just go there first then. Just take the watch. I don't think he's, I think he's like, he saw the watch and he remembered it. I don't think. He oh, yeah, maybe. He that, it wasn't for like her, but he's thing. just like. But he's smashing other stuff before that, too. Like, he's taking longer. Yeah. Even before he was reminded of that, he's, he's taking longer. Well, do we want to talk about Jenny and her ending? First of all, she's in the car waiting for him when he goes to kill Willie. Yeah, again, an accomplice. Yeah. Like, you're, there's no way she's going to be able to tell a court of law that she didn't know what was going on at that point. Anyway, so then they drive off and she's like, where are we going? And then they turn on the radio. He, she hears about the crime. She immediately knows he's involved in it. And then she mm -hmm. wants to get out of the car. She's sick to her stomach. They go mm -hmm. to it. And that's when, that's where he shows some bit of empathy where he's like, I've taken you too far now. You have a yeah, chance to not... get out. No one knows that we know each other. So he leaves her at the diner and asks when the next bus is for her to get back to LA. Yeah. And she's like, you're just going to leave me here. And I think she she's kind of protesting it because she's like, well, how can you just leave me after all of this? Mm. But there's a sense of relief in her eyes where she's like, yeah. okay, well, I didn't have to leave you. You're leaving me. Yeah, she has an out and she should probably take it. Uh, I think I think when yeah. the reality sets in of what he's done, uh, I think they might have said on the radio that a police officer was killed. I can't remember. But like when the reality sets in, she probably feels like it's too late for her to get out. But even though it's not like she's not really connected to anything, it's like she hasn't met any of these friends or anything like that. It's really the only kind of uh, non-selfish thing that Max does in the film really is to mm -hmm. send her away. You could also say that he, he's less likely to get caught if he's by himself. <laughs> I guess if you want to be. Well, that too, because like he could see that she's already trying to get out of it. Yeah. In a sense, what's going to stop her from trying to leave later on? And then she tells this is where he's going. It's got shades of Badlands there at the end with, mm -hmm. you know, how's this film going to end? How's It's going to end maybe in a shootout for Max. So Yeah. And then after that, which leads us now to Max's end, he leaves and he's just driving. And in the film, that's the end. The last scenes that we get are three different mugshots. Yeah, from Max Dembo, ranging from I think the age for his first one was eighteen or nineteen, to yeah. like somewhere in his twenties to now. Is is the last mugshot post that scene? That's that I was going to or... ask you about that. I <laughs> think the very first few times I thought this was the the previous one where he just got yeah, it. but I yeah. think the last one is to be like he got caught again. He got caught. Yeah, they don't explicitly say it. They're leaving it to the viewer to figure that out, and I, that's another thing I love. But the more I watch it, I'm like, no, this has got to be the final one after he got caught off to this job. To be like, we don't need to show you he's gotten caught by the cops, this and that. We've already shown you enough. We're not trying to sense, you know, make it bigger than it is. We're just going to show you this mugshot to be like, 
Mm-hmm. This is that that was his end. And then we're showing you he's done it before. He's likely going to do it again. Now he's committed a murder. So I'm sure he's going to be in jail for a little bit longer <laughs> than six years. Yeah. But how do you feel about that? How we don't really get a visual end other than that, that cue, that mugshot. I mean, I think it's, I love it. I love, I mean, I love seeing Dustin Hoffman's, you know, 17 year old mugshot or whatever, <laughs> you know, whatever, whatever, what age he is in that mugshot. And to see him age through and just the kind of repetitiveness of, of that kind of lifestyle. I mean, he rides off into the sunset, doesn't he? That's essentially what's happening. It's not a happy ending, but it's like a lot of those those kind of uh, Randolph Scott westerns and stuff like that that have like mm-hmm. a much darker ending. And they always ride off into the sunset, but it's sort of like, it's not like a positive sort of thing, like it might be in a John Wayne movie kind of thing. I think he realizes the world doesn't care about rehabilitation. The world that he lives in, the other world, which is the real world, I guess. They're trying to say that people don't care about, if you're a crook, you're a crook. And the sooner mm-hmm. you accept it, the better off you're going to be because the world doesn't care about rehabilitation of criminals or anything like that. It's it's really just about punishment, primate punishment. Max knows that he sees it for what it is. He's just going to do what he can do to kind of get by. Well, that's exactly that. That's why they're doing straight time after it. You're mm-hmm. still doing, you're still being punished afterwards. Otherwise they yeah. would just release you and you could be like, okay, bye. I'm going to go live my life. I mean, I don't want to get into the politics of that because I have my thoughts, but there's a reason why they cannot just let you live a regular life right yeah, after. Yeah, and exactly. he's not understanding why he's like, I've done the time. Why can't I just move on? It's not really, it's not really freedom. I mean, you're still, you're just surrounded by freedom, other people being free, but you're kind of shackled to them. Okay. So I think that's straight time. I think we've covered it and I hope that you've watched it before you listen to this or if not I hope this inspires you to watch it because it truly is a film that will stick with you I don't think I've met anyone who has seen this film who doesn't like it and they're not they're always shocked as to why they hadn't heard about it before and why it's not more wildly talked about or available so that's straight time I don't know if it's streaming on anything but uh sure you can hit me up if you need a link (laughs) <laughs> i do have i do have a hard copy but i can yeah there is there what, what's the hard copy is it from is it a warner brothers thing or is it a i can't remember if it's kino or if it's warner yeah it's good if, it was it wasn't expensive either so if you're, if you're looking for to buy it you could should be able to buy it yes 100 percent. so this brings us to end credits usually i ask two questions i'm only going to ask one of them because neither of us have seen i've only seen maybe Ulu Grossbred doesn't have a huge filmography. I think I've only seen one other of his films. It was, it's the name is escaping me, but it was like De Niro and Meryl Streep. It's like a romantic comedy. It was okay. Oh, really? So I'm going to skip if you think this would be a starter film. I'm going oh, to go to... Sorry, it was called Falling in Love. Yes, it was on Criterion last year. He made a bunch of De Niro films, True Confessions. I haven't seen any of these. I'd like to see his other stuff. Do we want to do the double bill question? So what film would you pair straight time with? You can give me more than one. If you're making a double bill, either for yourself or some people, depending on the vibe, what film or films would you pair straight time with? I mean, the, for the first one that jumped to mind, it isn't my pick, but the first one that jumped to mind was um, Killing of a Chinese Bookie. Um, yeah. yes. In terms of the style. Uh, I was going to mention that one, actually. Yeah, both both versions are good, whichever one you want. Um, the kind of the lived in feeling of L.A. and the, the mm. kind of vibe that it's like, these are just real people trying to get by and stuff like that. But the the actual film I picked was The Friends of Eddie Goyle because I think okay. um, yeah. thematically there are some similarities. The idea of just doing a job and 
you know, seeing it through and stuff like that in terms of the crime aspect of it is kind of interesting. Um, and I think the ending is a similarly kind of similar to what Max Denbo goes through and uh, you get to see Robert Mitchum. So that's always a plus. That's always like a plus. Slightly less people might have seen The Friends of Eddie Cohen. I don't know. but I, don't, I think yeah, more people have seen that one than Straight Time. Maybe. I always hear people That's Straight Time for sure, Eddie but Cohen. Killing of a Chinese Bookie, I'm not sure. Oh, no, yeah. Probably Killing of a Chinese Bookie is bigger than mm. Friends of Eddie Cohen. All three what would you? What films. would you think? Why would, would you think a good pairing with yours is usually good? Well, I have four different ones for different vibes. I'll just go through them yeah, yeah. quite quickly. The very first one was The Incident by Larry Pierce, which was released in 67. This is mainly takes place on a New York subway and there is two guys who are just creating chaos on there. And it's the tension there. One of the okay. guys played by an extremely young Martin Sheen. Martin Sheen. Yeah. And they're just big dickheads. And it's just the New York vibes. So if you're going for LA versus New York and the tension yeah. that both those cities have, you could do that. Another one that I thought of was the Bad Sleep Well, the Kurosawa one. Mm-hmm. The tension of not knowing what's going to happen next you know this someone has committed a crime you're trying to figure out why they're committing this crime why they won't let it go so it kind of mixes mm-hmm. with the max dembo being like why can't he just stop another one that i thought it was mikey and nikki the la in may 1976 yeah. in straight time there's a bit of a buddy film element to it where we're seeing kind of max and jerry you know, riffing off of each other, and definitely, it, it almost feels like they live in the. It almost feels like they live in the same world as as yeah. time. Yeah, yeah, it visually kind of. And most of Mikey and Nikki takes place at night versus the daytime elements. Actually, mm-hmm. I meant to mention that there's a lot of day elements. Like everything kind yeah. of takes place during the day, apart from the poker scene. And then the last one I thought of: you've watched Straight Time, you're feeling tense, and you want something that's. <laughs> A little bit funnier, a little bit more fun. I thought of Take the Money and Run, which is Woody Allen, 1969 film. Okay, it's a crime film. He's an idiot in it. It's funny. It gives you that contrast of being like, these are two people who should not be committing crimes, (laughs) but for different reasons. One is just wholly incompetent. The other one is competent, but just doesn't know how to, when to stop. So those are the four. Yeah, I actually, the first one that jumped in my head was actually going to be Good Times, the Safdie Brothers one. Yeah, that's another one. Because I thought that's kind of a more, if you want a more modern one. Uh, I do appreciate you picking a film that I haven't seen. Yeah, I know you'd like to do that. So The, show the Incident? Off, so. I did tell you about <laughs> yes. that one. Did you? Well, I've added it to my list. So there you go. Every time I tell this man about a film, he's like, did you tell me about that one? Like, yeah. <laughs> well, you tell me about a lot of films. So I, re- I write them well, all down. You should just be recording all the conversations. I should make a, I should make a Felicia. Well, I kind of do actually have one on my letterbox. So. That was straight time for you. I hope you, as you said, hope you watch it. But Dara, thank you so much for coming back on the show with me and talking about and what, in my opinion, is quite possibly the best heist film of all time. And I'm saying that as someone who likes a lot of heist films. But thank you for coming on. Thank you so much. Cheers. Seeing Faces of Movies is an official podcast of the Arroyo Film Club. It's hosted and edited by Felicia Maroney. Intro music by Lamar Walker. If you like what you heard, let us know at seeingfacesmovies.com or send us an email at seeingfacesmovies at gmail.com. And while you're at it, please subscribe and rate the show wherever you listen to your podcast.